Hi everyone, it's Joaquim Makren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Today I'm talking with John Hook, who is an angel investor in gaming and VP of publishing at Boombit. With John, we talk about the current state of mobile games, what is happening to hyper-casual and how John looks at angel investing in gaming. But before we go to this discussion, here's a few words from our sponsors. Are you a mobile game developer who's looking to try something new on the ad creative side? My top pick would be influencer generated content, IGC by Opera Event. Influencers and actors will make specific content from your games and Opera Event will deliver you high quality video ads that highlight the best parts of your game. Go to getigc.com to see some examples. That's getigc.com. At Pollen VC, we're committed to helping game developers improve their financial literacy. That's why we've launched CFO Resources, a new section of our website that hosts a free suite of calculators and financial planning tools to help you plan your business and grow faster. Our financial forecaster tool helps you project cash flows and visualize your ROAS and LTV based on metrics you provide. And if you're a hyper-casual developer, you need to check our hyper-casual velocity calculator. Head over to pollen.vc and click CFO resources to get started. All right, we're live. Hi, John. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Joachim. Great, great to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, sure thing. Like you're straight off the, the boat in Hamburg, it seems. <laughs> you were doing the, the conference today with the, the people yeah, at just Hamburg. A, a great M&A panel talking about all of the amazing acquisition and funding that's happening in, in gaming right now. So, uh, so yeah, now straight into this. It's, uh, it's great. Yeah, good stuff. Hey, we're going to be talking a lot about mobile gaming's kind of like current situation, what's going on, what the future will look like, and we'll touch base on a few other topics. But first off, I wanted to hear your origin story and how did you make your way into gaming? Well, I've had a very non-linear path, like a lot of my friends and peers that have been, you know, building games since um, they were an infant. So the the, the early part of my career actually was in... um, is in advertising, uh, more more on the brand side, working for groups within WPP and and, and Dentsu. Um, in the very early days of really when AdMob was just getting going, you know, when the big thing was websites and SMS ringtones, and um, uh, I was actually, you know, as a lot of these things happen, it's just very serendipitous. I was having dinner with a good friend of mine at Mobile World Congress, sharing some tapas after a sort of day at the at the show. And we, we started thinking, you know, this, this mobile advertising monetization thing, um, we, we could do that, right? We could, mm. we could, we could build something, sure. So uh, literally the, the next day um, started hatching a plan to, you know, p- pull together a, a, a business and yeah, completely bootstrapped it. None of, none of these amazing pre-seed funds or angel networks were really around then and had no knowledge of this at all. Just two very young guys that just thought, 
yeah, we can build a mobile ad network. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. so, so off we went, we built a, uh, a mobile ad network, um, helping sort of more like premium advertisers, um, you know, like Eurosport, the BBC, kind of CNNs, helping to monetize their inventory. Um, and yeah, end, end of four years, we got acquired by a, a US software development company that built sort of enterprise applications and they wanted a monetization solution. And it was like doing an MBA in two years. Like, again, no one had really prepared me for this stuff. Um, you know, not just getting acquired and all those pieces of paper that you'd wish you'd signed and didn't think you needed to sign um, that now you needed to get signed. But yeah, it was, you know, just being on a plane, um, you know, managing remote teams because they had offices in uh, like West Coast. HQ was in Austin. Uh, our teams were in London, in Singapore, uh, in the Nordics. So it just had a fascinating two years just learning about business, right? Um, you know, being mm. in board meetings and then pitching to, to VCs and attending investor conferences. Um, so then from there, um, uh, knew the folks at Colony well, so joined them to help them pivot from this sort of, you know, opera premium brand to video SDK network after they bought Ad Colony. Um, and then, yeah, another serendipitous meeting at Demexco with, um, you know, the then founder of Oma Games in Paris. I spent two years back and forth from London and Paris helping um, the great team there build out um, Oma Games. And uh, yeah, until kind of present day, um, been, I think, past 14 months now, helping the awesome team at Boombit basically build out their, um, you know, external publishing business. And then around that, which we'll get into trying to understand angel investing and figure out <laughs> how, to, how to do that. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a lot. To, to sort of like start unpacking now uh, but like I, I think what I what I really want to focus on is like where you now understand sort of like that mobile gaming especially the casual space you spent time at home games which is a casual hyper casual publisher and now at boombit you're also dabbling with hyper casual like can you define what hyper casual really is as a genre I the, the way I like to talk about hypercasual is it it's like Netflix, but for mobile games, right? And what I mean by that is you can literally open up Netflix on your phone and you can find a piece of content, whether you're seven years old or 70, right? Whether it's sport, documentary, cartoon, action, puzzle, like w whatever it is, you can find it on Netflix. And that's that's really how I try and explain hypercasual games. Y you're trying to build an addictive piece of content for a very short moment in time to make that person feel, you know, really quite satisfied, um, but for such a wide audience. So that mm. that's really how I think about hypercasual rather than trying to get too hung up on where a lot of conversations are about really specific metrics and it's not a game, it's just ads with a bit of content wrapped around it. You know, if we actually start with the audience and really understanding you know, what these games look like. I think that's a really helpful reference point to begin with. Yeah. Yeah, I think like the, the whole premise there about thinking about the, the Netflix consumer is really interesting since that's that's a, a place where you're looking for what to try out next and sort of like jumping into something so convenient with hyper casual. I think that that should be sort of like the analogy there for like how I would decode what you just said. Yeah. 
but but also just the element of choice you go onto netflix and there's just so much choice and of course their algorithm gets to know you but even still you're just confronted with almost Mm. like an option for everything the same within hyper casual games you find yourself in one game and you've got the cross promo from the developer or publisher saying hey try this game you know you've got you know a a varying degree of banners and rvs and interstitials and the majority of those are going to be for other hyper casual games and you know you've maybe been in this game for three minutes and then you're like oh that looks interesting i'll play that one and before you know it you've now spent three minutes in another game so you know sometimes how you browse netflix you start watching a a piece of content and five minutes in you're like it's not really what i'm in the mood for go back right i'm in another piece of content so there's there's some really nice synergies there as well Mm, yeah let's talk a bit about uh, the sort of like the development and, and the data-driven approach for hyper-casual development. Uh, what is sort of like the the common sort of like similarities with hyper-casual games, these titles that get to a day one retention of 60% or higher? Are there commonalities there? So the, the, there's really two schools of thought when it comes to that that testing process in terms of early validation of a concept. There's the sort of classic build some videos, do a CTR test, you know, raw gameplay, no fancy tricks or uh, fake gameplay uh, and just run it. And you're looking for that nice balance of CTR, but also CPC. And people forget about that because that's kind of indicative of your cost of acquisition. And people just get excited because I've got, I don't know, 12% CTR, but your CPC is like a dollar, right? Mm. It's kind of like, that's also an important metric. Um There's also the other school of thought where maybe for a couple of reasons, the studio, it takes them the same amount of time to actually build a basic bill to put in the app store as it would making a few videos. So they, you know, for development reasons, they go straight to CPI build, but also some people don't believe in this correlation between CTR and CPC and and CPI. So they really are using CTR in that instance as a game to, game design tool, right? Because you may you, you you've got a nice core mechanic, but what you don't know is, you know, should I have an urban environment versus a beach versus I don't know, an airport for argument's sake, or there's mm. two different types of art style or avatars. So so generally that's the early early process and of course that needs to happen as quickly as possible. And generally the advantage of doing CTR testing is you're kind of in the dark, right? In terms of, unless you've got very smart competitors that are scraping all these Facebook pages, it's very hard to see those tests versus the moment you put that piece of content in the app store, it's very easy for your competitors to see that. And given the speed of ideation development in hypercasual, you know, you, 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 you know, three, three days, you've got a nice test result. Well, probably three days later, someone else will have that exact same theme maybe with a slightly different execution in, in, in testing so so generally that's the, the sort of early stage testing process and then in terms of well what do i think are the recurring themes of studios that have repeated this success over and over again yeah it, it's really in your question it's that obsession over data combined with speed right you just leave your emotions at the door it doesn't matter how great you think the idea is you are looking for just constant data validation that direction you're going in is correct. You know, even in, you know, you don't really use the word soft launch in hypercasual, but even in that sort of final stage of, of testing, every change you should be making, A-B test you're running, should be confirmed by data. Because if, if you get it wrong, again, depending on your business model in hypercasual, whether you're pre or post exit, your, your ARPU, your, it's going to be quite small, right? So you've got very fine margins here of profitability. So um, 
you know, even the smallest change could completely wipe out your ARPU and all of a sudden mean that this game is not publishable. Mm. Right. Yeah. That's that sounds like something that that people who who sort of put a lot of effort into the data side, they can get over those kind of hurdles and, and start learning. Like that's sort of like what I feel is so cool about hyper casual is that the you go through these cycles so quickly and you're constantly learning and learning about like like also not what works, but also like what kind of approach for development should you go after and all of it. Um, but that's, like, that's of it also yeah. it's really similar to, you know, other game genres. It's, it's not overcomplicated. If you've actually got a really great um, mechanic or game engine, it's no different. If you're making an idle game, you're just trying to cycle through creative testing to find the right theme that goes with the mechanic that gives you that nice CPI that means you can you can scale, right? So, um, you know, there's also a lot of things that hyper casual has learned from other game genres. It's not like hyper casual just invented everything themselves. Right. Yeah. Like, what what do you specifically? like or even love about the hyper casual genre uh, what is what is sort of like innately like um, unique about the genre so i mean what i really enjoy is that just direct link to the pulse of like pop culture right mm. it's just that i mean going back to my netflix analogy there's if you look at my most hyper casual games you'll it's not like you're ever going to look at hyper casual game and look at it not whether you like it or not but whether you can't understand the content or the theme Right, because um, if you look at the the app store, there's always a percentage of games that have got are a direct reflection of something that is happening somewhere in the world, whether it's on TikTok, on Netflix, on YouTube, or a real real world event. And I, I really like that the direct relevancy and influence that pop culture has on on, on gaming. And I, I, I you know I really really like that. Um, I, I really like the, the speed. Um, because there's no room to be complacent, right? Because of the speed of hypercasual, um, and also linked to now the competition in hypercasual, you have to be constantly, like, constantly innovating, right? Mm. It's, it's very hard to have a day off in hypercasual because there's people around the world working seven days a week on ideas and testing and, you know, trying to build some sort of hack on top of a, a piece of technology to give them that slight competitive advantage. Mm. Um, you know, and, and again, it's not for me specific to hyper casual, you know, I always have enjoyed, you know, part of it is just the people that you work with, right? It's the, um, it's just the great studios that you partner with the great internal development teams. Um, and, uh, you know, the only slight difference versus the other genres that I work in is, again, it just comes back to speed. You know, you, you don't have the luxury of a week to figure this out. You, you've probably got half an hour and then you've got to go build it, right? Um, or at least build it and, <laughs> and, and test it. So, so I love those two things, just the speedy and immediacy of hyper-casual games and just, yeah, the way that, you know, just the, the, the intertwining of, like, you know, pop culture and gaming content. Like you talked a bit about there, but the innovation side of this rapid movement and development, when you're doing these games in like one or two weeks from scratch to soft launch, what are sort of like the the ideas and the innovation you can do there? Uh, what are some drastic ideas that you've seen being tried uh, or have worked and have, you know, have had really big success? I mean, look, let, 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 let's be honest, what, you know, not... <laughs> not answering your question with a question, but you know what kind of hasn't been tried at hyper casual in any point in time. Yeah. Um, 
you know, if you go back to the original days of, um, you know, like Ketchup and, and Boombit, right, making these free-to-play games, it wasn't called hyper-casual, but if you now fast-forward years later and you look at these hyper-casual games, I mean, some of them, it's just an update of the exact same core mechanic. It's just 3D rather than 2D and a slightly, you know, less pixely art style, right? Yeah. Um, and also at any one time, you know, to like my earlier comment, if you've seen a video on TikTok, well... Everyone around the world has seen that um, that same video. So everyone in hypercasual on paper has the same access to you know ideas or trends that you do. It really comes down to the you know the speed and ability to then execute on on that idea. And that for me is where where the key is. It comes down to this execution um, piece, which of course is tied to many topics. You know, development skills, depending on the where you're aiming in hypercasual, the art style. Um, you know your your monetization and UA expertise um, because I think I feel at times that hypercasual gets a hard rap. There is a lot of science that goes on behind the scenes in terms of effectively scaling and monetizing hypercasual um, games. Mm. But, but also, I think you know the, the reason you're another part of your question is in terms of why the constant need um, to innovate. You know, I was thinking about this beforehand because when I when I when I look at the audience, well. What really in hypercasual should your goal be to innovate, right? Because isn't the goal for hypercasual more to create these small moments in time that just create satisfaction and enjoyment? Um, and and you can achieve this by other ways of beyond innovation, right? Because most of the time, what you you see in the charts is it's it's a game mechanic you already know, but they've just added on a theme that means they can get great CPI. So like, for example, like the, the recent Voodoo game, where I'm sure the thing that got them really low CPI was the fact that it had like Shib, the Dogecoin um, character in that game, because it's just a huge, you know, thanks to sort of Elon Musk and, and crypto and all the, you know, social media, Twitter conversations for all things crypto and blockchain and Reddit. It's just become this phenomenon right so again mm. it's this immediately identifiable identifiable piece of content you know is it smart absolutely is it is it this crazy innovation you know i i i don't think so so in in hyper casual you know every now and again you see something very very innovative um, and what i mean by that is where someone has very cleverly wrapped together two or even three very interesting mechanics to actually bring something quite new but generally when i see something that's you know not being too cynical <laughs> about it because we're all here mm. to you know make games and build businesses but you know at times i see stuff and when i look at it i'm just like that's actually great marketing like it's a really nice piece of marketing if you unpack it it's not really this clever piece of innovation. It's just a very nice story that you've been able to craft, right? Um, So sorry to disappoint you and anyone listening. I think think at times in hyper-casual games, you know, really, if you look at, you know, when you look at Voodoo with their billion dollar valuation, you look at, you know, Rollick with their great exit and some of the, the, the investments, for me, what the re- of course, the reason for each of those investments are different, but what each of those companies are proving is their ability to effectively scale these pieces of content. And, and really that comes down to, you know, as much your expertise and your technology on the UA monetization creative side as it does your process and ability to work with internal or, or external development. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I hear you there. Like, I, and like one question that sort of like just came up to me is like the whole sustainability of hyper casual. Like, do you think it's 
hypercasual is sustainable because there are a lot of developers who would want to escape and start making more deeper casual like what are your thoughts about the sustainability and sort of like this transition like what makes that hard so what what would scare me immensely is if i woke up in in the morning and i I turn on the news and there was a headline that people no longer want to play mobile games that that would really worry me right um what what doesn't concern me is just the natural evolution of player behavior game genres you know, technology changes, you know, some are, some are driven by great innovation, others are kind of forced upon you, um, you know, certain privacy topics right now. Um, so, you know, hyper-casual every year, there's always people that say it's going to die. Um, it, it, it's not, it's just every year it matures. So when I look at hyper-casual now, depending on the analyst, it's a four to $6 billion industry. You know, you've got one of the biggest players in the space, Voodoo, with a you know billion dollar plus valuation. You know, granted they're now diversifying into casual and other other genres. But really, the reason it continues to grow is because you know look at the look at the population growth in the core demographic of of hyper casual. Right there, the way I think about it is not by putting these labels on it. It's just people that are brand new. They've got a, a smartphone and they want to start playing games. Well, where, where do you where do you start? Um, you know, like Roblox, uh, like what, what's your entry point? And for mobile games, a big entry point is hyper-casual games, right? Um, mm. So, it, you know, it's like going to kindergarten, right? And then, you know, maybe you graduate to college and in gaming terms, you're starting to graduate from a hyper-casual game into, you know, a hybrid or one of these lovely, nice sort of like new age merge games that are starting to come out now. Um, so... You're really, for me, I think hyper-casual now is so mature that what I'm seeing is that you can actually build games for specific audiences in hyper-casual that you never used to be able to because the CPI and you know the ARPU just wasn't, wasn't there. But what I mean by that is I'm also now seeing with this sort of top end of hyper-casual and you know, your comment about hybrid, as, as games start to go that way with you know, the same sort of hyper-casual core loop, a bit more meta to them, you know, maybe a bit of IEP and maybe even just some very soft um, uh, light live event, you're actually starting to attract players from outside of hyper-casual into these games. And the reason is, is because they're just downloading this game because they think it's an arcade game. It doesn't have hyper-casual on it. So for me now, these lines are really starting to get blurred. So it's back to the same place you always start in gaming, which is, well, who who are we building this for? Like, who is this audience? What do they want? What's the mechanic? What's, what's the theme? So I'm really bullish on whatever this genre continues to evolve into. And the, the, the piece that fascinate me, fascinates me the most in free-to-play gaming is, at times now, I can't see the line between you know high-end hyper-casual, these new age merge games, um, even like like idle games, hyper idle games. You know, hybrid is maybe a slightly different conversation. But even when I look at some of these casual games now, some of them and certainly the ads have been heavily influenced by hyper casual. So, so, so I love that. I just see so much opportunity in this free to play space now to just mm. take the best elements of of process, of art, of creativity, um, and that's that's where i'm most interested in in terms of seeing how that evolves versus worrying too much about what's going to happen to hyper casual because the players will figure that one out for us yeah maybe another transition question is interesting there's a like you've probably seen a lot of studios who are doing hyper casual development they're working with an external publisher um like a work for hire relationship like what do you think about the whole transition of these 
developers into self-publishing like is there is is it the is it the movement that makes sense for a lot of folks uh, what are your thoughts there yeah it's a really it's a really interesting question because you know it is this big topic that is sort of occurring behind behind the scenes now so you know what what i see is a you know a few interesting trends i think because of this you know at a, at a mobile going back to the panels just on there is all this um kind of M&A and IPOs and money pouring into gaming and it's absolutely trickling into the hyper casual space now and you know I've been quite shocked at how all of a sudden now it kind of seems like just a stereotypical number for a pre-seed round for a hyper casual studio is $250,000. I'm just like well like <laughs> when did that happen but it you know it seems to be the number. So now all of a sudden you've got this early stage opportunity to raise this pre-seed money into your studio alongside publishing options it, it's it's perhaps starting to change the, the mentality and options of um, some of these studios um, but but for me the thing that the thing that doesn't change is it's one thing having the you know understanding the product right and being able to develop the game and having some really skilled developers and artists and UI UX and you know even even maybe a game designer but when it comes to the you know the self-publishing question the kind of distribution you know, that is far more sophisticated than simply having someone that knows how to set up some Facebook and, 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 and Google campaigns, right? You need to understand the video SDK networks. You need to understand, you know, TikTok and Snap. You know, you need to have a, you know, you need to have creative technology and a creative team because you know, certainly in hyper casual, that, that, that is key is finding that, that great creative that can initially help scale your game. Not even to mention like, you know, like BI, so for me, I think this is one of the things that people need to think long and hard about at an early stage in terms of what should your priority be and what is it you're trying to achieve? Because if you do want to go to self-publishing, then the way I like to think about it is, well, look, first of all, focus on the development side, work with a publisher that is actually going to teach you about not just game development, but is going to be fairly open about what's happening behind the scenes on the creative UA monetization side and start learning about that. And a nice entry point would be then to start, you know, playing around with this on one of your games that there's no risk for you, but you can start, you know, integrating mediation, like setting up a waterfall, running some campaigns. It's kind of the best way to learn. And then I think if you then really want to go for self-publishing, then usually the trigger point is you would have ideally published at least one, but, you know, two or three games that then validate your team and your process that put you in a scenario where you've got one or two options. You can then go out and, and, and raise some, some funds and then actually help you go and hire this UA and, and creative team. Um, or, uh, you know, another option is, you know, there are publishers out there now that, that offer this, this model that actually allows you to self-publish. You know, they effectively provide the, the UA loan and a lot of the, the tools and services to really get you started and teach you. But, you know, that's also a really interesting vehicle. Um, and of course, the other thing that is, 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 is sort of encouraging this trend is, you know, the rise of a lot of these great companies in the UA funding space as well, that mm. you know, outside of ad network credit lines now mean that you can raise money and not have to give away additional equity um, for marketing dollars because you can access that through, you know, some of these companies. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah, I think there's just lots of things happening when we, we start talking about self-publishing. And I, I probably think the final thing that... Maybe it's, uh, you know, maybe it's um, kind of going un unnoticed or not. But, you know, the way I look at it is that one of the most interesting spaces outside of all of the sort of hyper casual publishers and new publishers, it's actually the 
it's actually the studios that are now moving into self-publishing and becoming publishers. That, that for me is really interesting because they've now cracked self-publishing, but where they may have the edge on perhaps some of the publishers is they've got a grounding in development and they've got people that can really, you know, very, <laughs> a very qualified level, look at your code, really help you on UI UX. Um, you know, so when I look at people like uh, Magic Lab or, you know, YSO Corp in France have just moved into that space and trying to court publishers or you know, there's a great studio in, um, in the ne Netherlands, like Lucky Cat, for example, that, you know, they make their own content, but they've now um, successfully published a game via a third party. So I also think that is a really interesting space to watch. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think like one of those those areas that now comes a lot up with a lot of developers is the debt funding model. Like you could you could even think about these Vulus and Qualis turning into more of like funneling that cash and sort of like using these developers as more of like independent external studios that that run the, their own sort of like UA for for products specifically because the isn't it like you want to have the UA anyways close to the product? I think that still applies, right? Even though hypercasual is there are a lot lighter games, but still, what do you think? Like, yeah, usually when you when you build a, a business or a team in hypercasual, you you do really have. I mean, I've I've done it a couple of ways. You you almost have these pods, right? And within a pod, you've got UA monetization, creative, um, you know, publishing manager. Um, game designer and that that pod is working with you know a, a small team of sort of internal or external development so to your point kind of ua monetization is ingrained from the very start and they see that all the way through to soft launch um and you know the other key point there is usually ua monetization it's the same person or persons right you don't have these separate right this is our ua team and within this ua team this person does facebook this person does google this person does unity you usually have teams that are doing everything right so they're managing the waterfall but they're also helping you scale on tiktok so i've seen it done that way but you know also as you start scaling now you start to look at that model and you're like well really how does that work across hundreds of <laughs> hundreds of titles yeah. So you do yeah. now have these much larger centralized teams, which is kind of similar, but you know, it's that centralized sort of UA creative function. Um, and what you may do is, is, is split some of those teams into sort of like pre-launch and then launch teams. So that's another way that I've, I've seen it done. But again, the model will really depend on the size of your um, development capabilities. Yeah. I want to switch gears here a bit and talk about angel investing so you recently came out of the closet sort of be, <laughs> as, as an angel investor i saw your linkedin post that you were sort of like uh talking about your angel investing activities tell me about that uh, what's it like to do angel investing in mobile gaming and what's hard about that yeah i mean you know what it, it's it's really hard <laughs> it really is and I, i've been trying to do it quietly for for a few years because i, I just wanted to learn Right, um, you know, having done sort of the experience and doing an earn out and learning through that, I just really want to understand more about. Uh, okay, well, let, let's let's try and understand angel investing because I've always loved working with uh, early stage companies, and you know, in in a position where potentially angel investing is now you know an option, I just wanted to really understand it and read up on it and understand well how do you do it beyond you know, oh, I've, I've worked with this person before, they've got a track record of, you know, this is their third startup, they exited the previous two, that kind of feels like a, a safe bet, right? I wanted to try and approach it very unemotionally and, and just learn. Um, 
so kind of my first foot in initially was was really through the UK. Um, not not I mean, ironically, one of the investments is in gaming, but through one of these sort of um, uh, EIS schemes. So in the UK, it's this enterprise investment scheme where there's some tax benefit for investors. But I, I decided to go in there because I just really wanted to learn from you know how this team, basically the qualification was SAS, but really how they were doing their due diligence, what it was they were seeing and reading their reports and trying to understand it. And it's great to see in that sort of initial portfolio from a few years ago, one of those is actually in the, <laughs> is in the gaming space. But then when I think about mobile gaming specifically, I've always been very close to it on both the monetization side, but you know now the distribution side especially. So I've had access to um, you know a lot of peers and friends that are starting up and I've been seeing what they've been going through and just trying to listen to them and understand well what is it outside of funding, what is it that they really need to get that first launch or to get them to a stage where they can actually raise a raise a pre-seed. Um, and, and, and really there's no substitute for just just jumping in and starting to have these conversations and reading lots of decks, you know, reading just lots of great content that is, uh, you know, that is out there. And, you know, clearly, you know, you know, I'm sure people say this the whole time on your podcast, but, you know, what you're doing is a, is a great resource, both for studios, but also angel investors, right? I mean, there's literally, I think I've pinged you twice in the past six months. It says, hey, Joachim, have you got a, have you got a spreadsheet yeah. for this? And you're like, yeah, here it is. But, yeah. you know, joking aside, I, I, you know, what I love about mobile gaming is there is a great network of angel investors that are very happy to just talk openly and share their experiences. So I've just invested a lot of time there talking with my network about really learning from them about well, what, what's worked for you. Of you, know, you don't have to tell me who they are, but what has been the sort of like recurring themes of the sort of studios you invest in? You know, what's your investment thesis? Um, so I, you know, I, I'm, very much, I'm very much enjoying it and um, trying to take the attitude that you know, I actually, it's a sort of responsibility we all have in mobile games to really help each other, whether that is directly through investing, making an introduction, sharing a piece of content. We, we've all got the same joint goal here. And that's what I enjoy about gaming versus perhaps some other industries that we all have that sort of common shared belief that we will, you know, try and help in some form. Mm, yeah, like that, like in Finland, uh, when I was sort of fundraising the previous time, I think there weren't any angels who knew gaming so there's there's a lot of people who are doing you know small checks uh but there were none who had had operational experience in gaming and when those people invested it was like they were just writing basically a, a lottery ticket to see what happens without you know there was no possibility for them to add any kind of value and what happened usually is that they they invested in companies where they couldn't vet uh, the business case at all. So, and they they lost money, and then they stopped doing that. So it was kind of like a, you know, people were first interested in gaming, and then they said it's too hard. I'm not going to do it anymore. But I, I think now it's changing a bit. I, I don't know if you've seen that in the UK as well, like in that way. Yeah, I think. Um... I mean, I, I definitely think, you know, as a result of all these fantastic exits, right, there are now mm. incredible angel investors who, like you said, have got a huge amount of operational experience, but now in a scenario where they can decide how they may want to invest their personal capital, whether it is, you know, directly, whether it's through a syndicate, 
or you know whether it's an LP through a fund. So I, I think now, um, as I said, there is a great pool of people that have had superb exits and can bring some really great uh, experience to early stage companies as well as the uh, as well as the capital. Um, but you know, it, it's, it's still it still is a challenge because each each angel investor, is, as you know, is very different in terms of you know what what their investment thesis is, what they're looking for, you know. And really, their level of involvement. Some are very happy to just write the checks, and it's just part of their investment strategy. But they're just very hands off. Others are doing it more because you know it is part of their investment strategy. It's their own capital. But the way that they justify that risk is they feel that they can bring something very strong early on. Uh, at maybe like you know someone's doing a safe, and you feel that sort of with you on board and a couple of others, you can help fast track them to that next raise. That then you know in turn the value of your piece of paper will then you know go up by the the next raise and so on um, yeah. yeah I definitely feel this pool of angel investors or people with it you know operational experience in gaming just grows by the week mm. why do you think so many people are still secretive about being active angel investors in gaming like you don't see uh, angel investors setting up websites promoting their activities <laughs> versus what like venture capital firms are doing I mean, again, I think there can there can be a number of reasons, right? There, um, you know, that there could be there could be well some just legal reasons because these people are actually you know on the board of a public company, so it's one thing making these investments with prior approval, but sort of disclosing them openly, you know, could be a problem or. You know, maybe they're just doing it privately, and they they don't want to. You know, there there are no legal problems about why they couldn't do it. It's just if their company knew, it might provide a problem. Um, like I said, I think some people are just very happy to 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 do invest and just do it very very quietly, right? That's just what uh, what what suits them. Um, but yeah, I, I just I just think it's a it, it, it really is a is a is a is a personal thing. I just think you just need to be kind of one or one one or the other, right? And and I just think. You know, you can, you know, like for for me, I have my reasons, um, my reasons for, for doing it both, you know, it's my own capital, it's my own risk, but I'm also doing it because I, you know, I, I love working with kind of great startups. And also it's just great to meet other angels when it's in that scenario that, you know, you're actively part of... Um, you know, a board or advisory thing because you're just learning. It's great. I'm just yeah. listening to my peers and, you know, I do it as, as much just to learn and get better at, you know, everything in in gaming. Um, yeah. But yeah, you're, you're, you're right. I think right now there's, of course, some great syndicates and there's some some superb early stage funds. But but yeah, I mean, I can think of some family offices that, that people maneuver behind. But yeah, in terms of, you know, you know, would I or do I know anyone that's actively set up their own website? I, I, I don't think so. And yeah. probably final comment would be, you know, perhaps the reason is, is that I see more people doing it now as part of syndicates and grouping together with with friends because of course it's easier in terms of you know access to deal flow you know mm. multiple minds look doing the due diligence versus you know if you're purely operating on your own um yeah. it, it, it is tough it is you know and i think that's something that maybe people don't understand they just think angel investing on your own is really easy that all you do all day is just read decks and just write checks um you know you're you know i, th I think angel investors appetite for risk um compared to maybe some VCs, and I'm, I mean this with the greatest respect of, you know, with angels, it's their money, right? You're not managing someone else's money and taking a management fee. It doesn't, it doesn't mean it's less important or it changes the risk, but when it's your own money, I think that tells you sort of, A, how important and personal that decision is, but B, you know, the level of comfort that person must have to make that decision. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I think like the, the thing, like 
what motivates me as, like as an entrepreneur uh, is is to to continue doing sort of like that support for the founder. So I think there's always a personal alignment as well there for like why you're angel investing. It's it's not a sort of like a profession you train for like from university or anything. It's always a sort of like something as a as a side project and then it might turn into a full-time thing down the road. Yeah, I mean I think that's a great point is is to start with if you're doing it because you just enjoy it and you just want to want to learn, you know, meet some great companies. That that's a really great entry point. You know, of course you're doing it because, you know, it's part of your, you know, personal plan in terms of like managing like, you know, your broader portfolio of investments or your your wealth plan. But yeah, I think it, it changes your mindset as an angel investor if you start and you're like, right, I have to make money from this. Like this has to yeah. work. I want to do it because I want to start my own fund. I, you know, mm-hmm. me personally, that's not why I why I started. Um, you know, of, of course, if things naturally progress that way, then you know, so be it. But I, I think you know, for me, that main driver is just supporting just really really great founders mm. um, and just you know working on uh, you know some great businesses and, and content and games and, and tech. Yeah, and exactly like if if one startup fails and the founders do a comeback, you know, in a year or two, it's really great to be involved again with those people. So I think that's what founders often forget is like, you know, if you if you're sort of like putting everything to it and it fails, like your investors will definitely want to talk to you again in a few years when you're down doing another one. So, yeah. Hey, a question about like teams since you're now talking to these startup founders and looking at like the characteristics of of a team that was able to go from unprofitable to hugely profitable in mobile games do you see any characteristics there with the teams yeah i mean of, of course i think you you have a you know i i don't have any personal bias between you know single founder co-founder prior experience at live product or this is their first time. I think some common themes I see is 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 just that hunger, right? Not blind hunger, but just that hunger to learn, right? If they don't know something, they'll admit it and they'll just go and read up and watch every video on it and network and learn about that, right? They just have this insatiable appetite to learn and a very open mind that starts mm-hmm. with, this is what I know, this is what I don't know. I'm going to try and learn everything about it or hire the best people in areas that I'm not good at. And I think that is such an important trait whether you work in mobile games or anything but I, i'd say that is that is definitely key i, I think having a very clear um uh, roadmap for your your title your game whatever it is you know if you're building a, a technology business but having a super clear roadmap with milestones that you are more than prepared to hold yourself and your your team accountable right so that you don't spend months building something where if you'd actually run some early tests and you know so basically it's not an ego project i think that is is super key right um and every time when i look at some successful companies usually the the first game is not it's not the right game but what they've done early on is they recognize that they kill it really quick, quickly they learn from it and on to the next title and i think that is definitely a recurring trait I see um, the ability to just follow data, kill poor content really early on, and move on to the next one. Um, I think the other thing that I I see from more from an investment perspective is they've really thought long and hard about what and who they want involved with their business, so they can steer the funding conversation map to their own goals. Right? I'm not saying it 
it, it always pans out beautifully like that. And sometimes, of course, it's opportun opportunistic. You get someone knocking on your door that you would never have considered, but they have a very clear vision of, of, of really what, you know, their the different sort of funding levels, valuations, but really outside of the money, what it is that they need to bring in where they think they're weak that will then help them get to that next level. Um, and I really like and respect that, you know, like when people decline, it's, it's, you know, of course, maybe it's some disagreement on the valuation, but it's always interesting when they decline because, you know, actually I've, I've already got an investor with a very similar profile that's going to help me there. I'm actually looking for someone that outside of the money has got real expertise in like the legal space. That's what I really need. Um, and and I, I love getting those kind of rejections and it sounds a weird thing as an angel investor to be rejected, but it, it, it does happen and I admire that. But what I then mm. do is I follow that founder very closely for however long because they have a trait that I I, uh, I, I deeply admire um, yeah. and, and you've covered the other one right um, link, link to knowing when to quit is is learning and then bouncing back just because you fail once doesn't mean you're going to fail again it's just understanding why you failed and then being able to tell me that and applying it second time around um, and again, the number of stories you'll read about people that failed the first time around, or not necessarily failed, but it didn't scale the way they wanted. And, you know, maybe they left or, you know, sold their shares to the, the co-founder and now they've just gone and built a monster company. It's just because, again, they have that humility to understand where they where they went wrong and, and, and learn from it. So I, I think a combination of all of those things, you know, are, are no surprises when you meet these successful CEOs. They, they have a, a lot of those characteristics. Yeah, that's brilliant. I really love those ones. Hey, before we go to the final question, I wanted to ask you about the, the merge genre on mobile, which is like blooming at the moment. Yeah. What do you what do you think will happen as more and more game developers start getting into casual merge? So, I mean, I, I mean, if, if we just go back to some of our earlier discussions, so what what I see happening now in merge is, is a few things. I'm starting to see these these merge games with these lovely sort of full screen. Um, like immersive merge boards rather than just sort of crammed into the top half and then there's something going on underneath. Um, I, I'm seeing a really, you know, really, really nice um, uh, sort of like art, art style that maybe merge was seen as kind of quite niche and maybe there were kind of lots of dull greens uh, to it and yeah. it wasn't really that relevant. But now I'm just seeing sort of beautiful artwork coming to it. I'm also seeing, again, I think perhaps it's inspiration from the rise of simulation hypercasual, but sort of interwoven now into that merge gameplay is this this simulation, this this story. And I, I think that's great because, again, I think you can attract a, you know, maybe a simulation audience into uh, into merge games that you, you know, maybe you couldn't uh, have attracted before. Um, and again, when I look at like the creatives that they're now putting out, sometimes when you, you know, I think there's a, this fine line between false ads versus actually just knowing how to build great creatives. You know, sometimes when I, when I, I spend a lot of time studying creatives because it just really interests me to see how people understand their audience. But, you, you know, you look at some of the creatives that are being run for like merge games and some of the first sort of like one to five, seven seconds, it's not the merge board at all. They are leaning in with this, um, almost like the story element to it rather than trying to get and it, it just then it just then transitions into merge and you're like oh cool that's a merge game I, I really you know I really resonate with that theme and topic well it doesn't really matter that it's a merge game so I think in terms of where it's going like I said earlier I just think it's this lovely fusion of lots of interesting things that are happening in um, in, in in free to play games so whether it's um, you know what James and the team are doing at Skunk Works with merge friends or 
you know, Ante and the team at Starbury with their uh, their latest merge game or Lion have released two or three now um, that I'm sure is pulling on a lot of their expertise in, you know, is, is certainly in the hypercatural simulation space, but a lot of the firepower they have now um, in, in their network. I, I, I you know, I, I certainly no longer see merge as this sort of niche, <laughs> niche category. Mm. I, I would almost look at it like hypercatural in that you have a very large addressable audience. Your Your task is now to find that, segue in through finding a really nice relevant um nice relevant theme yeah that's amazing yeah yeah it's it's like thinking about the the whole creative ua creatives for merge you can really reveal mechanics as well that you haven't thought about because you can like i've, I've seen a lot of fake ads on merge which aren't actually in the game, but that's totally like a great segue to think about what is the next title that that developer could be making. Yeah, for, like, and I, you know, I know a few hyper casual studios that it's not hybrid casual they're focusing on, it's merge, right? They've yeah. had a really successful hit hyper casual game in simulation, and they're now working very hard on turning that into a merge game. I find that fascinating because everyone's talking yeah. about hybrid casual, but a couple I know are like, well, I'm not interested in hyper casual, it's merge. Cause they found this really, then they've done testing. It's not this hunch. They've done some testing and built some ads. And you know, I've seen the, I've seen the early metrics and I, I can see the correlation. So yeah, I, I think merge is a, you know, a really, really interesting category. It is, it is. Hey, some final questions for you, John. Uh, I always ask about this book. Uh, I don't know if you're a reader, but what's your favorite book and why? So I don't read as much fiction as I like anymore, but like my, my favorite, my favorite author is, um, is Sebastian Folks. He wrote books like, you know, Charlotte Gray and Birdsong. Uh, part of it with Birdsong is I, I, I love anything to do with like World War One and World War Two, um, just for sort of family and just geeky history reasons. But I just admire any author that you can pick up a book and just completely forget about where you are, just being able to completely draw you into into that world. And I think the way that um, you know Birdsong in particular is probably one of my favourite books. Just the way it's written is is beautiful. Mm. Um, I think kind of more currently, I'm spending too much time um, reading um, non-fiction books. So I think the the one that's really change my thinking you know i'm sure you've heard this one before but is he's kind of never split the difference by chris voss i think yeah. it's a really you know he's ex fbi hostage negotiator <laughs> negotiator so i i think it's really interesting to learn and again when i think about angel investing and some of these conversations we think about publishing it's your ability to sort of influence people um you know particularly in covid right trying to read body language over mm -hmm. over yeah. zoom calls but just picking up and tone and voice and reading all these signals that are, uh, uh, people are giving you that can actually help you get a much better you know mutual result for both of you um mm. So I try and read that once every six months and I've got loads of post-its in it just to remind me of some of the key topics and make sure that I don't forget them because, um, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I'm manipulative, but I'm just saying that that book um, can teach you a lot in terms of actually how to conduct uh, like negotiations and investment. Yeah, that's that's really awesome. I, I need to I, I, I remember when the, came, the book came out, I was listening to podcasts where Chris was talking uh, about like his work so yeah i'll pick that book up for sure uh, hey this is also one of the questions i always want to ask do you have a like a story that shaped you and how you approach your work today um so probably 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 a, a couple um 
one when um, you know when when we exited our, our company, I was quite privileged to work with a COO who used to run Dell in Latin America, and he he just taught me some invaluable skills about really how to manage yourself that I'd never really thought about. What do you mean about managing myself? My job is to manage other people. So just really simple things about how to effectively manage your your time. Because I'm sure a lot of people have the same feeling. If you just, you know, open up your diary and have a calendar link, it's very hard to control your your time. So just really simple things in terms of right, you need you need to eat lunch every day. So put that in your diary. And I was like, well, what do you mean put lunch in my diary? He's like, we well, don't have to write lunch, but just block it out. And that is when you eat, have a coffee, and nothing gets in the way of that because that's your time. And he was like, okay, so what else do you want to do? I was like, well, you know, quite like swimming, going to the gym. He's like, right, well, however many times a week, put it in your diary. It's non-negotiable. That is your time. And I'm like. Like, come on, you can't. It's like, obviously, don't write, I'm in the gym or swimming, but it's just blocked out for something. Um, and then also managing remote teams, because I was having to look after teams sort of West Coast, Austin, London, Singapore, different time zones. It's like, well, how do you effectively do that? You know, how do you build teams, culture, but fully remote? And little did I know at the time the you know how important that experience and and learning learning from Scott would be to really the world we're in now and having to you know build teams remotely manage studios remotely and I I kind of I'm not saying I have an answer but I have a you know an experience and a rule book that can help me navigate this so I'm I'm very grateful for that learning and experience on the one hand sort of managing my time but also you know my, my mental health actually making sure I have time to think, you know, some time to form my own opinions rather than jumping from call to call without really forming any of my own opinions because you can't really think when you're just going from call to call or just making time for just great conversations like this because they just make you think and evaluate what you're doing if only to confirm it's the right path. Um, so I, I think for me in terms of the way that I currently operate, that that had a huge positive impact on the way I think and try and manage myself and then by by default the the companies or, or teams that i i get to work with nice that's really great i actually like i do a lot of time blocking uh, i have this time block planner from cal newport it's like i don't know if you know the guy he wrote the deep workbook so he also creates this time block planner book which is like a notebook where basically you you just, you know, put lunch there as well. <laughs> it's like, here is lunch and then here's deep work. Uh, and then you measure like how much you get that. And like, here is where Slack is sort of like turned on, <laughs> you know, and the rest of the time Slack is turned off. Yeah, so, yeah. No, it's, so. But, but that's the thing, it's, it's a weird thing to talk about. And maybe people listening are just like, well, that's just crazy. But believe me, once you start doing it, it, it will, mm -hmm. you know, it can only have a positive impact. It's a bit weird to mm -hmm. start with, but... Um, you know, it's great, but it is such a personalized thing to you to know when those kind of time periods are. So for me, for my brain, I've, I've just randomly found out that a really good time for me to be on Trello and start looking at game ideas and is, is between sort of 7 to 7.30 p.m. I don't know why, but it just seems to be my yeah. optimal time. So that's now in my <laughs> in my calendar, just as a reminder to manage myself, because that's when I yeah. seem to be most efficient. Nice. That's great. Hey, final question, John. Uh, let's wrap this up with where can people uh, reach out to you if, if you know, they want to talk about like their startup, tell you about their game. What's the best way to, to reach out? 
Just just pick me on pick me on LinkedIn. Um, I, I have my LinkedIn time where I try and respond to as many DMs as uh, possible. I you know I, I just all I promise I'll try and be as honest as possible if it's something that I can actually meaningfully help for and then be a good use of um, their time as much as mine. Or you know if not if I can recommend someone I will you know I won't just blindly ping them. I'll, I'll you know I'll, I'll give them a heads up. But yeah, LinkedIn is always a, a good shout. You can um, you know you can find with me on uh, you know on on Twitter as well if you want to. Uh, disagree with anything that I uh, I post. I try and keep it generally related to something within gaming or sport. They're usually the two topics I, I drift into. But yeah, link, LinkedIn or Twitter, feel free to uh, to reach out. Great. Hey, thanks, John. This was great. I, I hope you have a great summer and uh, hope to see you at, at a live uh, game conference soon. <laughs> that, that, that would be the dream, Joachim. Well, look, th- thanks for inviting me on. I really enjoyed it. Great. Hey, see you, man. Take Cheers. care. Bye. If you like our content, please do hit follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting app so that you'll get notified when next week's episode is available. And in the meantime, please do go and check out our weekly newsletter at EliteGameDevelopers.com newsletter. It's going to go out on Friday mornings where I share all the interest areas for myself in gaming startups. So check it out and I'll see you next week. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.